Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Morning again. This is hour two of Mornings with Carmen. If you missed the first hour, please go check it out. Uh, I think we had really excellent conversations this morning with Daryl Crouch about Acts chapter two and with Dr. Jim Dennison of the Dennison Forum, bringing the mind of Christ to bear on some of the headline news of the day. So you can always listen to episodes that you may have missed on the Faith Radio app or at myfaithradio.com. Dot com. It is Groundhog Day. It is a day where apparently we talk about the weather and superstitions and silliness and, yes, the groundhog. Uh, according to a groundhog in Pennsylvania named Puxatani Phil, we are now facing six more weeks of winter. And for many, many people across the United States, uh, they they already know that because there's a huge winter storm blanketing uh, much of the country today. So Groundhog Day as a day is certainly something we could talk about. But when you say Groundhog Day, for many people in the culture, a movie comes to mind. The movie is Groundhog Day. Bill Murray and uh, Andy McDowell are the you know featured stars in the movie. And uh, there's a conversation about Groundhog Day, not only as sort of this culturally iconic film, but as a film that Christians can use to have a conversation about sanctification. Because it's, it's not until Phil begins to serve someone other than himself. Um, it's only when Phil begins to love without the expectation of getting something back. It's only when Phil stops trying to manipulate the outcome that Groundhog Day, this same day he keeps living over and over and over and over and over again, turns around. So uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, even self-control become apparent in Phil's life um, when he begins to approach the same morning with a different expectation, with a heart of service, with a heart of gratitude, with a heart of love, not expecting love in return. And so, um, you know, not that it's a Christian film or a Christian movie or any of that, but are there threads we can pull from this culturally iconic movie Groundhog Day and apply to life? Yeah, I think there are. So did your day start today much like every other day? I mean, are you in a season of life that feels a little bit groundhogish? Um, there isn't anything wrong with that. Today is full of possibilities and, yes, ordinary rhythms that can be faithful expressions of the goodness and faithfulness and providence of God to you right where you are in the midst of the most mundane and ordinary of life's rhythms. 
I want to talk next with Julia or Amy Julia uh, Becker. She's the mother of Penny. That's how I first knew her. Um, But she is also a very accomplished author. And she had a piece that appeared yesterday in the New York Times. And I thought to myself, let's give her a call. Let's see if she will come and talk with us about what she has written, about this thankfulness uh, that she has every day for the decision that she made after prenatal tests that she received when she was pregnant with the girl we now know as Penny. But I also want to talk with her just about the unexpected joy of ordinary mornings on this Groundhog Day. We'll be right back. Joining us now, Amy Julia Becker. She is uh, an author. She is also a mom. You can find her at amyjuliabecker.com. Amy, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. It's wonderful to have you. So your um, op-ed in the New York Times obviously caught my attention yesterday. It is about prenatal testing, but it's also about and leads off with just kind of the unexpected joy of ordinary mornings. So um, take us into your ordinary morning at your house. Sure. So I have three kids and our oldest child, Penny, is 16. And she's uh, kind of the, you know, central character for this op-ed because when Penny was born, she was diagnosed with Down syndrome. But what has struck me as she's turned 16 and become in many ways a pretty typical teenager is how ordinary our life feels, especially in the day-to-day. So in the morning, she sets her alarm every night. She sleeps through it more or less every single morning. So I wake her up at seven, uh, but then she, you know, she comes downstairs and sits down pretty much immediately to check texts on her phone. Um, I cajole her into the kitchen. We might argue about what she's wearing for the day. And uh, she gets herself breakfast and packs up her uh, backpack and grabs her pom-poms for cheerleading because she has been on the cheerleading team this winter. And I drive her to school. And it's pretty typical um, and, and ordinary. But as you said, there's an unexpected joy in that for me and for our family uh, because it felt really different 16 years ago when we were wondering what our life with her would be like. I appreciated your, uh, the, you know, the way you lead off with the personal and helping people uh, have that window, that glimpse into, frankly, the ordinariness of life with, uh, you know, with, with Penny as an integral part of your family. Talk with us about what women hear when they are faced with prenatal testing um, options And surprisingly to me in your piece, um, how biased doctors are when they present um, prenatal tests. Yeah, so there are a couple different stages to prenatal testing. And the first is the screening. So a screening test is what they call non-invasive. It's a blood test that can be presented as something that will just give you neutral information about your um, child. And so most women, all women are supposed to be offered those tests, and most are, and most say, sure, why not? Why would I not get that information? Um, What's hard is that we don't always, we aren't always prepared for what that information might bring. And right now, uh, which is different than 16 years ago when 
when I had Penny, but those screening tests are much more accurate in being able to identify uh, if your baby has Down syndrome than they used to be and less accurate when it comes to other conditions. But if you then have the screening test and it comes back and it says, look, it looks like you are going to uh, potentially have a child with Down syndrome, what the doctor is then supposed to do is offer a diagnostic test. So a test that is more um, invasive, but also 100% accurate. So that would be like an amniocentesis or um, a CVS. So that's a different type of test. And at that point, if the results come back and say, yes, your child has Down syndrome, although again, some doctors would do this um, even though they shouldn't earlier, they are by the code of conduct um, of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, they need to offer a couple of different options. One option they're supposed to offer is continuing the pregnancy. One option is adoption and one option is abortion. One of the things that I, when I was doing research on this, um, saw was that often genetic counselors and doctors, at least according to the study that I had access to, um, assume that if a woman has gone through this prenatal testing process, she wants an abortion in the face of a prenatal diagnosis. But there are plenty of women who are not in that position. And so it can get really challenging for women who are in the face of unexpected, um, challenging news, often feeling a lot of fear and confusion, and sometimes a lot of pressure from friends and family um, and from doctors to respond with abortion in given a prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome or other conditions. I want to talk with you, um, Amy, in just a second about the term valuable and what we mm-hmm. value. And so if you're listening right now, um, my my conversation partner is Amy Julia Becker. You can find her at amyjuliabecker.com. We're discussing right now an op-ed that appeared yesterday in the New York Times about her thankfulness every day for the decision she made after her prenatal test. She also has a forthcoming book um, that I'm going to ask her about in just a moment. How can we be made well? An invitation to wholeness, healing, and hope. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen, and we'll be right back. Women in the United States of America uh, who are pregnant have prenatal testing uh, of a wide variety. Some of them are screenings and some go much further than that. And uh, there's an assumption behind all of that testing um, that conditions parents and society as a whole to see kids as valuable according to their physical strength, intellectual capacity, and social acuity, rather than setting us up to receive their lives as they are given. That is a paragraph from Amy Amy Julia Becker's um, op-ed in the New York Times that appeared yesterday. I'm thankful every day for the decision I made after my prenatal test. Um, Amy, talk with us about the word valuable. Yeah, I think one of the um, problems we have as a culture right now is how we value and measure uh, ourselves and our children and one another. And one of the things that um, comes up for me and now that I have a child with a disability is recognizing that, first of all, people are seen according to their potential for economic productivity, right? Like, are you going to be able to get a job that... Uh, provides enough money 
for you to be self-sustaining or will you be quote unquote a burden to our society and people with disabilities are often seen as quote unquote burdens because of being less you know economically productive so that's one way of thinking about value is like what are you going to uh, give to our economy. I think we also tend to apply value to, you know, relative like intelligence uh, or your how you look physically, who you are, um, how you can operate uh, socially, all of those different um, aspects of who we are. Instead of saying every human life is valuable, what does it mean to have been created in the image of God and to trust that God actually has a purpose and um, a need that we need every person. <laughs> There's something that uh, they have to offer and that they bring into the world, even if the gifts that they bring are not able to be measured and codified, you know, according to um, their economic output or these other measurements. I had a conversation with a uh, with a mom who was kind of struggling through this conversation. Um, in terms of prenatal testing, not that she had received, but that her sister had received. And her sister was, you know, considering um, aborting her child uh, Mm -hmm. because of the outcome of the prenatal test. And one of the conversations that this woman and I had was, what, what, what would your sister say if the doctor told her at nine, at nine, your child is going to be diagnosed with leukemia? Or at 15, your child is going to struggle with depression and suicidal ideation. Or at 22, your child is going to be diagnosed bipolar. Or, you know, at 30, they're going to lose their job and uh, and need to move back home. Or at 40, they're going to reject your faith. Like, the, 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 the idea that we could make decisions based on projections of a person's life, mm-hmm. um, I think when we think about just how varied life really is, it helps us understand that a a prenatal diagnosis is almost meaningless for the Christian. I think there's like a truth to our humanity that we really try to deny by saying, how can I make this um, easier? And and it's not a bad instinct, right, to want to... um, bring children into the world and have them live comfortable lives, right? That's not a bad desire. And yet suffering is a part of life for all of our kids. Hardship, wonder, fragility, like all of these things, joy are a part of what it means for us to be human. And it's so such a such a good instinct as parents to want to protect our kids from experiencing hardship and suffering. And yet it's also, it's just a part of life and it's a necessary part in terms of our um, developing into who we're going to be. And we sometimes I think forget when we look at these statistics of, oh, your child has an X, Y, or Z chance of getting X, Y, or Z, you know, terrible outcome and disease or whatever that, and they also have an X, Y, or Z chance of being a delightful happy, you know, person with um, connections of love and of giving and receiving with lots of other people in community. So I think it can, that's one of the problems back to prenatal testing, when you're only given a medical projection um, and not given a sense of what the social reality of life with a child with Down syndrome or other disabilities can be, it can be a really distorted picture. 
Um, let's have a, a just a brief language conversation here. Um, we have a listener, Kathy, who's texted in, uh, you know, who says, I have a non-typical grandchild. Um, and, you know, sometimes her feelings are hurt when people use language, um, you know, expecting that God is going to give everyone a quote-unquote healthy baby. The language mm-hmm. about the language right related to healthy or unhealthy, typical, atypical, disabled, handicapped, special needs. Can you have a bit of a language conversation with us? Yes, absolutely. You know, I use the word disability because it is actually a technical term that is used both by in the medical establishment and in order to get like support from the government and things like that. I tend to think that, um, however, that idea of like atypical or non-typical is a more neutral way to talk about, yeah, we've got some kids who do fit a little bit more into a mold of what we expect and others who don't, and that's not a judgment on them. It's just a descriptor. I also sometimes use the word vulnerable to describe Penny and other kids with disabilities because they are more vulnerable, both socially and emotionally, as well as physically. Um, I think that the term special needs, you know, can be, again, descriptive, but it also can become something that people think badly of. And then we've got this question of healthy, which I think is such a good word, especially for Christians to think about. Um, You mentioned that I have this book coming out to be made well. And so I looked a lot at the concept of health when I was researching, what does it mean for Jesus to be a healer? And the our concept of health tends to be pretty physical and medical, whereas a biblical understanding of health is about relationships. It's about your relationship with God, your relationship with your body, with yourself. So it's not, it doesn't take away that physical or medical. It's just so much bigger than that because it's about um, being healthy in who you are within yourself, with God, and with your community. Uh, there's a guy named Brian Brock who has a son with Down syndrome, and, and Brian is a theologian. And he says, you know, Adam, who has had a ton of medical complications, he's 18 years old, and he said, Adam is the healthiest person I know because mm-hmm. he is the person who is most deeply and um, easily connected to God that I know. And I just love that idea that we really need to understand health as Christians um, in a very different way than we've been taught to by our culture. Uh, And I think there's some really important implications for even that whole idea of like, what's, what is a healthy baby or for that matter, a healthy adult. And so that is a great question. And I'm glad um, your listener asked it. Will you come back and talk with us about to be made well, an invitation to wholeness, healing and hope? I would love to do that. Yeah, because yes, we're out of, we're out of time in this conversation, and uh, you know today. But I definitely I love I love just the way you even set that up. Um, and I want to talk about what it looks like to be healthy because of our relationship with God and understanding who we are in Him and all of that. So um, that is that excites me so much. Amy Julia Becker, thank you so much for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. You, You guys can visit with Amy at her website, amyjuliabecker.com. You can also uh, check out her forthcoming book there, which now I know she'll be back to talk about, To Be Made Well. We'll be right back. Hmm. All right. So uh, I want to talk to the grandmas and grandpas out there today. 
Maybe you are a biological grandma or grandpa. Maybe you married into a tribe like I did. And so I am one of a constellation of grandmas and grandpas in the lives of my grands. Maybe you are a spiritual grandma or grandpa. Maybe there are kids at your church or in your neighborhood, kids who are the next generation of young families who you are shepherding and loving. To whom are you grand? To whom are you grand? That's the legacy conversation that we want to have. We want to talk about what it means to be grand in our expression of the legacy of the faith and faithfulness generation to generation. Chris Howard and Shelley Tomlinson are both grandmas. Between them, I think they've got 20 grands. They have a website called Rockin' It Grand and a book by the same title. So we're going to... um. We're going to talk about that next. What does it mean to, you know, rocket grand? All right, brace yourself because these are grannies like you may not have ever met before. Welcoming Chris Howard and Shelley Tomlinson to Mornings with Carmen. Good morning. Good, Good morning. morning. Good morning. All right. So one of the two of you goes by a pet grandma name. Well, maybe you both have pet grandma names. Chris, what shall we call you? My grandma name is Two Mama. Two so Mama. Two Mama. It's been that since my oldest grandson, John Luke Robertson, named me that when he was 21 months old. He had been calling us both Mama, which was confusing for all involved. And one day he just looked at me and said, two mama, and it's been it ever since. <laughs> so I love that. All right, Shelly, um, I know that gives away to me um, what your grandma name is, but I'm going to let you introduce yourself uh, to the audience as well. Thank you, Carmen. I am Keggy. That's K-E-G-G-I-E. I do not have as adorable a story as Chris does. My family, <clears throat> excuse me, nieces and nephews, the first round of kids years ago, one of them couldn't say Aunt Shelley, and it came <laughs> out Aunt Keggy. The family named me Keggy, and then the grands come along, and for anyone that's about to be a grandmother out there, let me tell you, they just they just name you, just like John Luke did Chris, and I wondered what they would name me, but they picked it up, and I'm a Keggy. I love that. You guys can um, can check out what's going on with these two wonderful women at their website, rockingitgrand.com. We're also talking today about uh, about their book, Rocking It Grand. Um, let's, uh, so I have a funny grandma name story and it's not my own cause I'm just grandma Carmen, which is not very clever at all, but, um, that's okay with me. Um, but I had a friend a number of years ago and her little grandchildren called her white grandma. And I'm like, that seems kind of funny because she had this snow white hair and she laughed and she said, well, trust me, I'd rather be white grandma because they very publicly describe their other grandma as black grandma and <laughs> and because she has black hair and I'm like okay so see there are ways that children arrive at the names of things that we just would never right in our minds right never 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 come up Absolutely. with so 
You might want to choose your own grandma or grandpa name if you're listening now uh, in yeah in your own defense throughout your lifetime. But I'm with Two Mama and Keggy. We ought to just take the names our grands give us. Chris, what go. um what makes you a grand? Well, I, I say all grandparents are grand. It's just the, the nature, the stature of our position, which just puts us there. And I just think that's faith-based that God put that in our in our culture because um, it is the grandparents that link together the past to the present, and that's that's our job. And but also, I think grandparents gra- grandparents love grandkids love their grandparents just unconditionally, which is the funnest thing ever. I was just hearing the news as we before you got on that said six more weeks of winter, and my grandma radar just went, "Wow, we've got to get those crafts out, get those things ready for those grandkids because." They're going to be in our house and needing uh, some fun things to do in the six more weeks of winter. All right. And I know um, that in both of your houses, there will be cookies. So, Keggy, tell us a little bit about the book, Rockin' It Grand, um, and the fact that it includes, like, cookie recipes. (laughs) Well, we decided that we had to include the cookies because every grandma knows that can change the game quickly. And so we like to encourage grandmas to be game changers. And so that's why we we thought we would include a cookie with each chapter. And we have some fabulous cookies from the women in our families. But in the book, um, thank you for the opportunity to bring it to your audience. It is called Rocking It Grand. And our goal for it is to come alongside grandmas and encourage them and help them see how integral they are in their grand's lives and how they really can occupy a place in their lives that can help lay a foundation that those children will benefit from for the rest of their lives. And with the world as it is, um, you know, it can be fearful and, and the news can be scary, but we want to empower grandmas to realize that they can step in right there and they ch- they can change the the atmosphere in the room. They can change a generation. They, they're powerful, and we want them to know that. So Chris and I take turns addressing different topics about being a great uh, grandmother, a game-changing grandma in our book, and then we end each chapter with a little cookie recipe. I love it. I love the cookie recipes, the, bee two, mom, uh, the two mamas B-52s. Mm-hmm. Um, is one we've already tried out. So there you go. Hats off. Um, hats off to Mama to your B-52s recipe. That one is excellent. Um, Chris, uh, what, what does the word legacy mean to you? And how are you cultivating uh, a legacy with your grands? Legacy happens whether we do anything intentional or not. We're leaving something with our family. And I I tell kids today, as a matter of fact, I had a 16-year-old in the house the other day, and I said, you are shaping your legacy right now at 16 years old. So it isn't something that we should wait until we're 50, 60, 70, until we're a grandparent to think about. We should start thinking about that when we're a young person because that's where it begins, what we want to leave with our family. And our family many years ago started writing down our leg- things that we wanted to have in our legacy back when our children were young. 
And today we have a list of 52 of them. Just this Christmas, I finally put them in some kind of a graphic art thing for all of our children to have because you can't start thinking early enough for the way you want to impact the world and the way you want to leave your message of faith and love to the generations that follow you. It goes by too quickly. Everybody knows that. It goes by faster than we think. So start now living the life that you want to leave for your children and grandchildren. And now for me, my, I have five great-grandchildren to start living that that life that we we want them to know will bless them the rest of their days. All right. Give us those numbers again, Chris. You have how many grands and how many great-grands? I have 14 grands and five greats. In fact, yesterday morning, I took a two-year-old and a nine-month-old to the library, came home, worked all day, got the three-year-old at four o'clock to entertain him while the mom of a new baby had a, an hour and a half and then went to the 17-year-old's baseball basketball game. So it keeps you rather busy, but <laughs> it's the best thing ever. <laughs> it is the best thing ever. All right, Keggy, how about you? How many grands and do you have great grands already? I do not have great grands. I'm a few years behind Chris in the whole grandma game. I have six. I call them the super six. And I was just in Houston. Um, I live nearby four of them and two of them are states away in Houston, Texas. So I was just with them and coming in. I don't have any great grandchildren yet, but I am all about pouring into the lives of these that I do have. And I just, I wanted to say, if, if I might, Carmen, like, yes and amen to what Chris just mouthed was just so wise to me to, that she articulated the, the fact that right now what you're doing is creating a legacy because we model that even um, oftentimes, let me let me try to say it this way. We think that you have to that that's something that you're doing out of intention, and we are very big on intentionally mentoring our grandchildren. But I want grandmas to know that whatever is consuming you, whatever your focus is, whatever they see matters to you becomes important to them. So for us, that is our faith in Christ. And we we show them Jesus throughout the day, every day when we're around them so that they begin to understand our priorities. And I tell you, they will they will pick up on the the uh, example that you're letting them see. We're talking with Chris Howard and Shelley Tomlinson. They are the authors of Rocking It Grand. You can uh, also find them at the website, rockingitgrand.com. You can be a game changer for generations to come. That is the message to each and every one of us who are grandmas and those who will one day be grandmas. Um, being a grandma, is, it looks a whole lot different than it did um, when my grandmas, you know, who I... <laughs> who I love and I think about their lives. Um, but my life looks really, really different than theirs. I still work full time. I still have kids at home in addition to having five grandkids. Um, and like you, Keggy, some of my grands are right here in close proximity. Others of them a, a few hours away. That presents challenges as well. So when we come back from a very brief break, can we just talk about how different it is to be a grandma today than maybe yeah. it was for our own grandmas and give people yeah. some some tools for walking it out faithfully um, in the days in which we live. Does that sound like a plan? Mm -hmm. Sounds great. All right, we're gonna we're gonna continue rocking it grand 
Uh, Chris and Shelly are going to be with us uh, through the break. So I know you want to hear more about what they have to say and some more of those cookie recipes. We'll be right back. Continuing our conversation about what it looks like to be grandmas today. Chris Howard and Shelley Tomlinson are the authors behind Rockin' It Grand. They are also the women behind the website by that same name. We're talking about, you know, how as grandmas we really can be game changers for generations to come. You guys know uh, I have grands. You know I love them very much and I invest in them intentionally. Uh, and the way that we grandma today is very different than the way our grandma's grandma'd. So let's talk about that. Chris, how has, you know, being a grandma changed? And, uh, and you know, maybe what are the rules for being a grandma today? There, so much has changed um, in the grandma space since our grandmothers were grandmothers. But again, like I said earlier, that doesn't mean that we didn't absolutely adore them and the space that they occupied. And you mentioned, Carmen, that you still work full-time. When I had all of my grandchildren, I was still working full-time. Now that I'm on the greats, I don't work full-time, but I still work in uh, writing books and running a camp and several things like that. But I just don't go to an office every day. But I think that that is the thing, when you think back, even at our grandmothers, even though they lived a different kind of life, they still loved and adored us and wanted to be with us whenever they could. It just wasn't that often. So today, because of the technology we have, and I'm like you guys, I had a lot of them who lived literally next door to me and then several who lived in Alabama. So I've taken full advantage of our cell phone and social media and that sort of thing to be able to connect with those grandkids that don't live here. Now they are in the working world and in college, and I am constantly texting one of them saying, I'm praying about you, heard you've got this today, or I'm FaceTiming them to say, oh, I just need to see what you look like today. What are you wearing to school or work or whatever? Taking advantage of those things that we do have, plus I think taking advantage of the time that we live in today, that we are in better health, that we are able to stay younger, longer, that we can do the things that our grandkids do. Even my great-grandkids do. I play tennis with them. We go skiing. We we do things. We stay involved in their lives on a, on a physical basis as well as just emotionally connecting and calling and checking on them as much as we can throughout the day. I love that. I love um, I love the physical activity part of it. Um, I love the intentional inclusion of them in things you're doing and then intentionally including yourself in things they're doing. Um, Keggy, uh, let's, let's pivot to you for a moment as well. Is there a particular devotional? Because that's one of the things I want people to know about the book, that it really is written devotionally. Is there one that stands out to you that you, you know, you think, oh, well, I just want to highlight this one today. Oh my gosh. Um, that's kind of like choosing between your grandkids, right? Chris? <laughs> You're allowed. Yeah. Oh, well that, so that might be another question. Am I allowed to have a favorite grandchild? 
<laughs> I do secretly. Not I, I, I tell you that <laughs> last summer, Carmen, this is just a short, funny story, but I have a camp here at home. I call Keggy's camp and all my grands come in and we play on the lake and we do a, everything that, you know, we can do within the few days that I have them all together, all the cousins together. But I was putting all of them to bed at night and I would tell them individually in their bedrooms as we snuggled and prayed that they were my favorite. And we, I was having the best time with it. And y'all, they caught me. One of them was outside the door one night and heard me telling the other one that they were my favorite. And it was the funniest thing. We had a big powwow and I explained to them that they were in fact, all my favorite and that mm-hmm. I had been playing the game. So they were sneaky and they caught me. But um, I don't think that was your question. Your question was- No, I think, but that's the answer. That's the answer though, that they're right, all my favorite. That's really good. They are all my favorite. And I know we won't have a lot of time here, but I will pull out one in particular that comes to mind. And it's a story I tell about how little kids, I figured out that my youngest um, female grandchild at the time, she wanted conversation. So she was in that age where she was always saying why, and this may hit someone that's listening right now. And they have a toddler that's always asking why, and you have to answer all those questions all the time. Well, I want us to see that how we answer those questions questions and the conversations that we have that do not matter can help us later when they begin having conversations that do matter and you do need to address. So instead of just turning a deaf ear to all Emerson's whys, I I developed this little fun game with her where she would say, you know, why is the grass green? And I would answer with a very nonsensical because the fireplace is hot. And she would say, but why is the fireplace hot? She caught on to it. And I would say, because the water is blue. So we would talk, literally going down the road, we could talk for an hour about absolutely nothing, but it satisfied that desire for her in conversation. And in doing that, you lay a you lay a foundation to where when they need to ask you something, they need to have a conversation that matters, you have invested that time in them. So that story comes to my mind as a very good grandma hack for anyone that's listening. I love that grandma hack. My um, my grandma hack for the why question is every once in a while to give an absolutely thorough 50-year-old answer to the question. <laughs> because, like then, because then I find that they're like, oh, we never wanted to know that much about anything ever. So, That's pretty yeah. smart. That's pretty good. <laughs> so... Um, uh, we have lots of cookie recipes at our house as well, and so I wanted to um, I wanted to advocate for the sneakers because I noticed that you don't have an if unless I missed it you don't have a recipe for sneakers. Um, we do not okay. tell us about the so, sneakers. So, so sneakers is any cookie recipe into which you sneak like something of high protein value, like you put a can, like you rinse and put a can of garbanzo beans in there. And actually when they bake, they seem like nuts or you put protein, add protein powder into like a chocolate cookie recipe. Cause it does the flavor completely disappears because the chocolate cookie already has so much flavor. So anyway, sneakers are my way of like ramping up the protein value of a cookie so that everyone can eat more of them. Brilliant. Do you not think that is brilliant, Chris? I think that is absolutely brilliant and very sneaky. Yes, I have not, I have I, not thought about that, but I'm all about trying to give them healthier things. So, yes, I like that. 
Yeah, well, let me, trust me when I tell you, they will never suspect. But t- particularly with the with the rinsed off garbanzo beans, this you can fold them into literally any cookie recipe. Particularly if it's already got, you know, nuts or raisins or craisins or oatmeal, something lumpy in it already. They just never even mm-hmm. suspect that it's in there. Okay, I'm trying. That's my grandma. That one. That's my I'm grandma. Trying. That's my little grandma wisdom from Grandma Carmen to Grandma to to Keggy uh, and and to Mama today. I like it. Well, you, um, the two of you inspire me to, to rock it grand. I am trying to rock it grand right where I am. You guys should visit with Chris and Shelly at rockingitgrand.com and check out their book, Rocking It Grand. I mean, you know, this is, a, this is how you can become a game changer for generations to come. Chris and Shelly, thank you so much for joining us. What fun. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Thank you, Carmen. It was a delight to be with you today. Thanks. So much fun. So much fun. We'll be right back. All right. We got a couple of minutes here. And so I just want to give you a little encouragement in, in the face of the opening of the Winter Olympics. I was reminded yesterday that... Athletes um, participating in the Olympics from Taiwan will not be allowed to use the Taiwanese flag. And so I want you to consider the challenge that the four Taiwanese athletes competing in Beijing for the Winter Olympics. I want you to consider the challenge that they are facing um, in in a country that doesn't recognize the um, the freedom of their nation. Uh, And so when you hear Chinese Taipei, that is Taiwan. Uh, And so let us be, you know, just acknowledging the challenge that those four athletes are facing. Also acknowledging um, the the challenge that viewers like you and I are going to face as the representatives of the Uyghur people are asking everyone to boycott watching the Olympics. Don't don't give the Chinese government um, your eyeballs. Uh, because we want their attention to be turned to what they are doing to the Uyghur people, an active genocide taking place um, against the Uyghur people in China. And so the Uyghurs are asking, their representatives here in the United States and in the human rights community around the world are asking that everyone would boycott watching the Winter Olympics to be held in Beijing starting day after tomorrow. And I know that for some people that's going to be really challenging because you say to yourself, but I want to support those athletes who have put in so much time, who have dedicated so much of their lives to their particular sport. And the Olympics happens to be taking place um, in in a country that is responsible for human rights violations, the likes of which are almost unparalleled. Um, and so... That's a consideration today. I think that's a soulful consideration for each and every one of us as we consider the beginning and the opening of the Winter Olympics uh, in just the next, actually, few hours. You have been listening to Mornings with Carmen. If you missed any portion of the program or want to share it with someone else, you can do so later today at MyFaithRadio.com or right there on the Faith Radio app. Have a great day. God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. 
That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.